This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Friday show, Friday, October the 2nd. It's hard to believe we're already in October. What that means for those of us at Calvary Chapel is when we come to church on Sunday, it is Communion Sunday, and we're always thrilled to sit at the Lord's table together. So that's on our agenda. Whatever's on your agenda, may the Lord bless you in the pursuit of your relationship with Him. If you don't know by now, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything that's going on. We'll see what the Word of God has to say about it. All you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car on this Friday afternoon, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app, one button. Call now, banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, a couple of things. Not only is it going to be communion uh, tonight, I'm going to be teaching um, in Ephesians chapter 3, and then on Sunday for communion Sunday, we're going to be finishing the book of 2 Timothy, and then uh, we'll take a break for a week, and then I'll be back uh, with, uh, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians on Sunday following that. Speaking of my schedule, I will not be here next week. Pastor Ken will be handling the show for me uh, because Paul and I are going to try to finish the vacation we kind of started. We're going to get away and see our kids in California, um, see our grandkids and have some time of uh, just kind of hanging out with the most beautiful girl. Now she's the most beautiful girl in Texas, but but when we get there on Monday morning, she'll be the most beautiful girl in California. So we get to hang out and uh, uh, just sort of rest, sit on our bench and talk to Jesus at the beach and and uh, have a good time. So uh, you can pray for us, and we'll certainly be praying for you. And I'll try to remember to remind you that I won't be here next week at the end of the program as well. Well, let's get to some questions that have been sent in while we await your phone calls. The first one is from Dewey. He's actually asking a question for William. Uh, He said, a question about um, seeing our loved ones in heaven and the reality of being separated from God. Now, uh, in this particular case, it's a little hard for me to know what the question is. Uh, Certainly, we're going to see our loved ones in heaven, those who are in Christ, who die in Christ. Of course, we're going to see them. Uh, 
And one of the reasons that heaven is going to be so spectacular is these amazing reunions. Can you imagine? Now, I'm, I'm going to be personal here. My dad uh, wasn't a really nice guy. I mean, he, he wasn't horrible, but he wasn't a really nice guy. And there was never that that sense of, of love. You know, uh, my dad, I don't ever remember him telling me he loved me. He was a Marine D.I., tough guy. He told me he was proud of me a few times, but there was always a but, and then he would throw in something that he was critical. But when I see him in heaven, it's going to be completely different. For the first time, I'm going to see the man. I didn't know I was going to get emotional. Uh, I'm going to see the man that God always wanted him, intended him to be, because that's who he is in Christ. And he got saved on his deathbed. I've got a baby brother that I never got to see, Ricky Allen. I never got to see him. He never came home from the hospital. And I'm going to be able to see him. And we're going to know each other. I think of the people in our body who've gone to be with the Lord. I'm going to be able to hug Davina again. She was such a small, short girl. She would hug me and her head would always be right on my chest. And she would say, oh, Pastor Ron, I love you so much. And I'm going to get to see her again. And and, and there are so many others. Um, my dear Kuka, who who went to be with the Lord. Um, I mean, she lived a long, fruitful life. She used to say how proud she is of her pastor. And we're going to see her. So we're going to see our loved ones in heaven for sure. Um, when you ask about the reality of being separated from God, the truth is that we're all separated from God apart from being in Christ. Whether it's here temporally or whether it's um, uh, in, in heaven for eternity, apart from being born again, we're all going to be separated from God. And that's why being born again is so important tonight in the message. Paul talks about that, that he's been given the gift to preach the gospel that he's a servant of. And likewise, we've been given that same gift. And we don't treat it like a gift, but if you want people to be in heaven, it's got to be in Christ. So, um, Everybody apart from born-again believers is separated from God. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. So uh, those questions, and again, not quite sure what you meant about the reality of being separated from God, but uh, that's the best I can do with the information I've given. Um, Yes, the second one was, how do you know if you have the calling of God to teach or to preach or to be in the music ministry, and I'm sure there are other things, and um, the, the answer is, God lets you know. You know, if I'm a Bible teacher. It's what I love to do. It's what I've been called to do. Um, but, you know, there's going to be some outside corroboration of that gift. I mean, if I'm standing in the pulpit and I'm teaching the Bible and nobody shows up, or people keep telling me, well, I don't understand what you're saying, um, you can tell that. That's probably because you're not called of God to teach or to preach in that sense. And we're all told to share, to preach. It doesn't mean with the gift of preaching. It just means that we have the command to share Jesus, to share the gospel. But make no mistake, to to be a Bible teacher requires the power of the Holy Spirit and the calling of God. So the gifting of God is attendant to that calling. Um, Music. You know, um, Dewey and and William, in this particular case... 
if I could choose, I would say, oh, I want to be in the music calling. I would love to play lead guitar. I'd love to be able to sing and play the keyboards like we watch Jocelyn do here at Calvary Chapel. I'd love to be able to do those things. But if I did, the moment, I know three chords. I started strumming three chords on guitar and started singing the microphone. Believe me, everybody would know that I don't have the gift. Thus, I don't have the calling. So I think this is one of those things that if you follow Jesus every day, he will let you know what you're called to do. He will put a burden on your heart. He will give you the attendant gifting for that calling. And then when you do that, other people will want to hear you, whatever it is. And that's how we know. You can see people being blessed. You can see people. And, and that's not why we do it, to get, to, to get blessed. We, we do it to be a blessing but we don't do it so that people say, oh, you're really good. But God will let you know this is what you're called to do. I never believed that God would call me and gift me to be a pastor. I was told by people who knew me before I got saved that that's out of the question. God would never do that. But look what he's done. And all we have to do is remember that God calls, and then God equips. And all we have to do is supply the obedience. So Dewey and William, that's the best I can do with that. And while I'm thinking about you guys, let me say to Sharon, your beautiful wife, Dewey, happy birthday. I know it's your birthday today. God bless you for that. Thanks for the questions. Here's a question from Vincent. He said, Pastor Ron, would you agree that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan if they were pushed out of their land again. Oh, I understand. I almost said, no, the church has replaced Israel. Uh, I, clearly, Vincent, you think the church has replaced Israel. And you're asking me if uh, Israel was forced out of their land, would I come to your side of the equation? The answer is no. The answer is no. Now, first of all, that's not going to happen. God brought him back sovereignly in a miraculous way. No people has ever been away from their homeland for any number of years, let alone nearly 2,000 years, and been then reestablished in that same land and become a nation again. I think personally, Vincent, that's the greatest miracle that we've seen in in the 20th century. That was... Uh, 1948 is when that, that process began. And that's just the hand of God. Now, you want to throw up the hypothetical. What if somebody kicked them out? What if they were, they were overtaken? Well, you know, the, the Arab nations around them who've all sworn to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Every Arab, even those that we're sort of making peace treaties with now, every Arab is raised from birth to hate Jews to hate Israel and to vow their complete destruction. They tried in 1967, they tried in 1973, and in spite of overwhelmingly stronger and larger armies, Israel whipped them in short order. 
And they did it because God was fighting for them. God has a plan, and that plan is going to come to fruition. So first let me say, it's not going to happen. But even if it were to happen, then those biblical prophecies would still have to be fulfilled, and God would bring them back yet again. It happened in when Babylon overcame them. And for 70 years they were out of their land until God simply raised up a ruler, gave uh, 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 Israel, found favor with that ruler, and in the process allowed them to go back home. That's always the way it's going to be. So Vincent, if the church has replaced Israel, and that's your sort of agenda of your question, if the church has replaced Israel in the plan of God, then God is a liar. All of the promises made to Abraham will go unfulfilled, and that means we do not have a God that we can trust. Thank you for the question. Let's go to Floresville, our friend Margaret on line one. Margaret, good to hear from you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing I'm doing okay. I um I'm calling for Natalie's mom, Denise. Uh she's in okay. Louisiana, she's in New Orleans and um, she came to me yesterday with something that I am just, I know where my heart is. I want to make sure it's in the right place. Okay. My son has not gotten any better. In fact, he's worse. He's terribly worse. And she, um, he was arrested again. We, we found out. She reached out to my ex-husband. He has suggested to her to come to San Antonio search out my son and try and talk some sense into him. I don't think that's, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, he's supposed to be homeless. And my heart breaks for my son every day. I pray mm-hmm. for him. But he's making choices that are outside the will of God, and I, God won't bless his mess. Um, he'll help him clean it up, but he's not ready to ask for that. And he's still, you know, it's, everybody else's fault, whatever he's got going on. And um, I'm just waiting for him to come to his senses. She feels like she's supposed to come and push him in that direction. I don't believe he will listen, and I think it's dangerous, quite honestly. Yeah. And um, I'm, I tried to talk her out of it. I, um, I sent her the study from Second uh, Timothy, um, the third chapter today. I happened to, uh, I think it was the second lesson in the third chapter, and it seemed to just scream, stay away from the situation. But she mm-hmm. wanted me to ask you what your thoughts were on her coming here to try and talk sense to me. He's, she's so new and following the Lord. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's hard to hear his voice. I've been trying to follow him for 50 years, and <laughs> I still get confused and think that I'm doing the right thing. And one thing that's helped me in that regard is that if your heart is in the right place, God will fix your mistake. And I do believe our heart's in the right place, but I don't know. I just, and and I always feel like Mm. I'm uh, overstepping my boundaries and calling and making the show about me, but there have been so many times I've had a question for Jesus, and he's answered it through one of your callers. So maybe (laughs) there's somebody else out there that's going through the same thing. It's like, do you just let Mm. him go? Keep praying yeah. and stay out of his way, or do you, you know, I just don't feel like this is where I rush in, but am I right to tell her not to? 
Yeah, Margaret, a couple of things, and and I want to be really clear here. So if I speak slowly, I just don't want to misspeak at all. Um, You know, we've got to learn, and and she's such a a new believer. Um, She's not equipped to deal with um, somebody who is completely in rebellion against God. She's simply not equipped to deal. She needs to pray, and I'm sure she is, but uh, she can't come and change, and in fact, Um, being around him might cause her to stumble a little bit. uh, And and that's simply not the the right step to take. When you said that you felt like it it might even be a danger to her, I I could not agree more. Uh, When somebody will not listen, there's no point in continuing to talk to them over and over and over. This has to be a move of God's Spirit. And... um, you said earlier he's making decisions. He's got to be held accountable for those decisions. But it's not because we want him to be judged. It's because what we want him to do is have to wrestle with Jesus instead of wrestling with people. And um, praying for him is the best thing that we can do for him. But until somebody wants to hear, um, and the Spirit has to move on their heart, until somebody wants to hear, there really isn't anything apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we make sense with somebody who is insane with sin? You know, to talk sense into somebody um, implies that they're sensible or that they can be made sensible. Well, that's only going to happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. So our job is to tell him, as you've told him, as she's told him, um, is telling him it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. So that's the only question that, that we have the answer to. You need Jesus. He died for your sins, declaring the gospel to him. And when he stops listening to that, we have no hope. So as he goes farther and farther out there, um, we've just got to understand that God loves him way more than we do. And as, as a, a, a mother, grandmother, mother-in-law in this, in this situation, um, our, our interest is in protecting the baby Christians. Protecting your grandson. And, um, you know, how low does your son have to go in order to get to the bottom? And then then Jesus will be there for him. That's what happened to me 29 years ago. And that, that's typically what it takes for especially we hard-headed men. So, Margaret, I think your counsel is good. I wouldn't back off it at all. Uh, I would tell her that you can't make the choice for her. That's not your job. But as a new believer, her only source of peace is going to be being close to and in the presence of Jesus. And the more she spends worrying about him, um, the more opportunity the enemy is going to have to mess with her. Now, let me say this to everybody in the audience. A lot of times when I get these questions about, about leaving our adult children uh, to, to deal with the consequences, people automatically assume that it sounds like I'm being mean or sounds like I'm being harsh. Uh, but you don't understand how much I love them. What we've got to learn as Christians is that God loves them way more than we do. And we need to funnel all of our energy into two things. One, and this is the most important, personally living for Jesus. And second, praying in the will of God for the soul of the the rebel. So, Margaret, I think, I think that's instinct in your discernment. And uh, I think uh, Natalie is in a, a much better place 
uh, staying away from the, the, the one who is in rebellion against God. So I hope that helps a little bit, Margaret. Thank you very, very much. And uh, we will be praying. As I said earlier, I won't be here next week, uh, but uh, Paul and I will be praying for um, your whole family in that situation. I'm glad to hear that Natalie is walking with the Lord. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I just thought of something that I meant to mention at the top of the, the broadcast and forgot. Uh, I would call all of us at this point, Christians everywhere, doesn't matter what your political position is, we need to be praying for our president and first lady. Um, you know, the, the, the mess on social media, especially Twitter, is um, beyond evil. Beyond evil. doesn't matter whether you like this president or don't like him. That has nothing to do with it. As Christians, we're told to pray for, the, for our leaders and we're to pray with the heart of God. God has poured out his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit that he's given you. That's the love he wants us to pray. And now we have um, a 70-year-old man and his 50-something-year-old wife who are suffering from uh, what many of us have been through. And um, we, we need to pray that they will get through it quickly, that their symptoms will be light, um, that God will uh, pour out mercy and perhaps even use this to really and truly grab their heart. This isn't a political disease. Like God, this virus is not a respecter of persons. And I've said this several times in answer to questions. We're all going to get it at some point. I personally have had it. Paula has had it. Uh, We were among the, the blessed ones, the lucky ones, who had very, very minimal symptoms. Um, I never even stopped exercising, never had a fever. Um, just very minimal. Paula's were a little bit worse than mine. But, um, you know, we were we just sort of sailed right through it. Others that we know who've had it, our church, as most of you know, had an outbreak uh, back in June. And, and 50 or so of us got it. And um, everybody's fine. Now, there's some who are still suffering with side effects. Um, and we should be able to pray from a compassionate place for the Trumps, and uh, we should pray without ceasing on their behalf. So I would ask you all to commit that to prayer, uh, and I would be very, very grateful. Here is a question from Christopher. He says, the Bible says we will be raptured at the last trumpet. I think that means with the final trumpet judgment in the middle of the Great Tribulation. Well, Christopher, what you've described or what you've adopted is called the pre-wrath position on the rapture of the church. And it says uh, that we will be raptured in the middle of the Great Tribulation just before the fullness of God's wrath is poured out. The problem with that is, is when the Bible says in 1 Corinthians that at the last trumpet, um, will be gathered together with the Lord. It has nothing to do with a literal trumpet. It has nothing to do whatsoever with the trumpet judgments. They're completely different. We've got the, the, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the vial or bowl judgments um, that are going to be poured out, seven of each, during the Great Tribulation. 
Um, so that the, the trumpet judgment has nothing to do with with um, the last trumpet. The last trumpet is a metaphorical trumpet. There's not going to be um, somebody in heaven blowing a trumpet, but but it's very Jewish imagery, and it was a call to readiness. Uh, that's how they would call their armies to get ready with different bugle sounds or trumpet sounds, and and that's what he's saying. So uh, what 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 Paul is saying in First Corinthians 15 is is uh, the very last trumpet we're going to hear is a trumpet that calls us to be with him. And it's just this call, a symbolic call to readiness because when he comes, it'll happen in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, and we'll be with him. We also know, Christopher, that all of the judgments, beginning with the seals and then into the trumpets and then extending into the vile uh, or the bowl judgments, which are the worst, all of them are the great tribulation. And all of them contain unspeakable death and destruction, unspeakable horror. And we're going to be spared from that. Jesus said, pray that you would be counted worthy to escape such judgment. So, uh, Christopher, just get your trumpet straight, and I think your eschatology will, uh, will straighten out as well. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. How are, where are we in the... Oh, well, there's the music. I don't have to ask. Uh, We've got 30 minutes left in the week. This is the word to stand on for life. We would love your live calls and questions, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand on for life. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for hanging in with me during the break. Um, We've got a question from Alex. Pastor Ron, what role does Mary play in our salvation? Alex, none at all. She has no role. You know, I wish Catholics, and this is where the idea she is, especially with this Pope, and the last one too, by the way, gaining traction is a co-redemptrix. There's uh, nothing uh, more blasphemous than that. Um, I wish they would read her Magnificat. I mean, they've got in their Bible, they revere what she wrote, but they don't read it. She calls Jesus her Savior. It means clearly she understood that she was a sinner. So Mary plays no role whatsoever in our salvation. I'm going to go one step beyond your question. Nor does she play any role at all in our sanctification. You know, Catholics pray to Mary, and they pray to other saints as well. But but Mary has sort of the preeminent role. And the idea there, I think, is, well, you know, if you talk to a mother, the mother will tell them what to do. Um, you remember at, at Cana? When Mary said to Jesus, you know, it's kind of an embarrassing thing, well, the wine is all gone, you've got to do something. And Jesus said, woman, why are you bothering me with this? 
And then the Holy Spirit spoke to her and spoke to Jesus at the same time. And she turned to the servants and she said, do whatever he tells you to do. If you could really talk with Mary, that's what she'd tell you. Do whatever he tells you to do. Don't pray to her. There's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, Paul writes. And so, Alex, she plays no role at all. We ought to honor her. We ought to appreciate the great faith and the sacrifices that she made. But that's where it ends. There's going to be a lot of people when they get to heaven going to find out how embarrassed Mary was when people prayed to her or asked her to intercede on their behalf. It's just religious, traditional nonsense and it has no value at all. Sheila says, um, I'm worried about my kids' mental and emotional well-being during this pandemic. I know kids are resilient, so am I wrong to worry? Um, Sheila, we've been talking about this. You know, we we struggled with, wrestled with uh, the, the idea of, of opening our school for in-person learning again. Um, we were being advised not to. And talking with parents, uh, we find this is is a sentiment that they expressed repeatedly. Um, they're worried about their kids' emotional well-being. And you know, uh, an illness, a virus, we get over the virus in, in 10 days. But we don't get over the mental stress that it takes on us. We don't get over the damage that it does emotionally to these kids. Kids need normalcy at least as much as possible. Even in the middle of something like this, they need normalcy. They need to socialize. They need to be around their friends. Kids need fellowship just like adults need fellowship. And, and uh, again, the, the idea of routine is really important for their emotional well-being. And so you are right to worry about them. Um, um, kids are not as resilient as we like to think they are. You know, I've heard this argument, divorce, oh, kids, get over it. They don't really. I can tell you that after 25 years of counseling families, kids don't get over these things. So, um, yeah, you're right to worry about them. You pray for them. But let me tell you the, the most important thing, Sheila, that you can do for your children. The most important thing by far is to be sure that you are walking by faith and they can see it. Kids read your level of fear. They read your level of fear. And if they know mom or dad is afraid, then it's going to affect them in a much deeper way. If they see mom and dad sort of trusting Jesus when they are afraid, instead of giving in to the fear or, or, or panic, um, they just say, you know what? And, and this is what families ought to do. Sit down and say, yeah, this is a strange time. But as for me and my house, we're going to trust the Lord. It's not exactly what Joshua said, but it's close, isn't it? So kids read your fear, and they need to see your consistency. They need to see that your faith is activated in the middle of things that you're afraid of. And it's nothing wrong with admitting to them that you're afraid, but you got to let them know Jesus has this. And if you say that with your mouth, but they know differently by watching how you're living, well, that's really what's going to mess them up the most emotionally. So um, you should be worried about it. Spend time with them in the Word. Talk to them. Play with them. Engage their minds. Get them to read. 
But most important, pray for them, pray with them, be in the Word together with them, and make sure that they can see you're trusting Jesus. Very, very important question, Sheila. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Jeff on line one from San Antonio. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Pastor Ron. Wow. Hi, Jeff. Haven't talked to you in about three weeks. I don't know if you've been yeah. hearing me yelling amen on the other side of the radio. But. <laughs> no, no, but I was praying for you this morning because as I was walking, the Lord kind of brought you out and said, you know, we haven't heard from Jeff for a while. Lord, I pray that he's doing well. He and his wife are doing well and, and uh, all is well. So thank you for calling. I appreciate it very much. And I'm, I'm glad to get you in now, just minutes before you head out to your little bench on the beach there yep. on the coast. Um, you you need to do you need to do a, a show from from your bench and just do a <laughs> just turn the camera on yourself and even if it's a five minute <laughs> devotional. You know. you know, Jeff, I'm I'm laughing because Sam, the producer, is sitting here next to me saying, "Thumbs up, take me, take me." So <laughs> he's all for he's all for your suggestion. That's right. God is large and in charge. Yeah. <laughs> And and Sam is great and never late. Does that fit? <laughs> yeah, that fits. <laughs> he's gonna well, he's gonna ask for a raise now. Time. I actually have a real real comment. Um, okay. A real question. I wondered, Pastor Ron, if you would uh, read Nehemiah nine, verse six. And one of the things I'm hearing from I've heard from several Christians over the past several months is. You know, well, that's the fate of our country. And I'm saying, wait a minute, you're you're a believer, right? Well, fate is is not part of our vocabulary. I mean, you're you're back in Greek mythology or something, you know. And so my question is, you know, who or what really governs history? And and I'm believing that it's providence. It's God's providence. It's the doctrine of providence. And Nehemiah nine six to me really really seems to to sum that up, and I'm wondering if you would would just uh, uh, talk about that what God's providence is, and especially how even though now we're you know we're responsible, we need to vote, we are involved, we need to understand uh, what's at stake, but we also need to not just fret or worry. Jesus has been telling us that all along, but. How do you how do you uh, how do you talk to these Christians that are fatalists and remind them of who's really in charge? You guys have yeah, a wonderful Jeff. time. I listen to you off the air, but love you so thank much. You. And thank you, Jeff. And we'll talk to you again. Bye-bye. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm going to add actually two verses to what Jeff asked me to read six through eight, and I could actually go uh, even further than that. But but. Um, Nehemiah says, you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants, the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites and the Etherites, you have kept your promise because you are righteous. 
And then he goes into Israel's history. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. And, the, and the, the, the thing that we need to understand is, and Jeff used the term fatalism, too many of us as Christians, we attach God's sovereignty to, to a fatalistic approach that says, well, you know, God, he's going to do what he's going to do. God is sovereign. And we don't have to do anything. But remember, God is looking for people to partner with him. When it says, you chose Abraham. Well, Abraham had to say yes. In the same way, in these troubled times, and again, in the the very last hours of the last days, um, God chose us. Acts chapter 17, verse 26, says he put us right here, right now. We're who we are, we're where we are, when we are, because this is the place where it's easiest for us to find God and to find our calling for our lives. And there's no room for fatalism. There's no room for kind of holding back and just waiting for God to move the chess pieces on the board. That's simply contrary to what the Scripture says. God's looking for partners. And we need to remember that. And so what we need to do is do what Nehemiah did at the beginning of the book. Remember, God put this burden on his heart. His brother comes back. He says, so tell me, how are they doing in, in, in Jerusalem? And the answer is, oh, they're doing terrible. And God put this unbelievable burden in Nehemiah's heart. And he began to pray, and he fasted, and he sought the Lord. And, and we know by the context he was asking, God, well, I don't know what you want me to do, but, but give me an opportunity to step in and do something. And uh, one day he's in front of the king. And he says, uh, the king says to him, well, so why are you sad? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And it was dangerous to be sad in the presence of the king. And he prayed. What can I do, the king said. And he prayed and God gave him this wisdom. And he was the one who God used to activate his sovereign plan. And that's so very important in times like this. You know, we sit back. Yeah, we ought to vote. And yeah, we ought to be, be, be men and women who stand for righteousness in a world that's completely rejected it. But the most important thing any of us can do is simply to be with Jesus every day and follow him, and we're all going to walk right in the middle of God's perfect will. That's what Nehemiah did. He found favor with the king. He found favor asking him for time away. God used him to, to miraculously rebuild the walls. We need to do some wall rebuilding in the culture that we're living in right now. Satan has taken this one pandemic and he's turned a bunch of us Christians into mush, spiritual mush. You know, where so many of us were faithfully and loudly proclaiming the goodness of God. We say dumb things like, well, God is good, and we respond, God is good all the time with that silly Christianese. But then one virus hits. And we demonstrate that we didn't mean any of that stuff when we said it before. For a lot of people, this is the first real test they've ever had, and we're not answering the bell. So yeah, God is sovereign. But that doesn't mean that we can be fatalists. We have to get busy doing the calling in these last days. Paul says, because the days are short, we need to redeem the time, making the most of every opportunity. Good question, Jeff, and good to hear from you again. 
I prayed for you this morning. God answered my prayer. Thank you. Let's go now to Belmont, Texas, and talk with James on line one. James, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yeah, hey, Brother Ron, it, it's um, it's James. Uh, it's been a while since I had an opportunity to say hi to you, and I was doing some reading, uh, especially in John, uh, all through Acts, and there's a verse or two that I'm sure you'll you'll know of that's over in uh, Ephesians as well, but it's uh, differentiating between uh, indwelling and infilling of the uh, Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and mm-hmm. how it is that we can have indwelling, um, which to me kind of seems to be a all or nothing sort of thing, and yet infilling seems to vary. Um, there can be more and less and times of, and it seems to be something that we uh, pray on, uh, on and about. And and so I I have a little. It's just kind of hard for me to kind of grasp the thought of of how we can have the indwelling of the comforter and yet the infilling can vary so much. And uh, yeah. I'll just listen offline. Thank you, James. I appreciate it very, very much. That's one of the most important questions that we can ask, and, and we ought to be asking it every day. Um, you know, Paul writes, do not quench the Spirit of God. Um, the, the Spirit lives in us. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But we can quench the work he wants to do. I've often said, James, that, that the Holy Spirit has the most frustrating job of, of, of the triune God. Um, he lives in us in, in a relational way, not, not, not a little Jesus running around in our, in our hearts, but he lives in us. And the power of God, the, the power that raised Christ that lives in us, and yet we snuff that power out all the time by disobedience. See, the power, the infilling or the, the, the empowering of the Holy Spirit requires obedience. The infilling or the, the, the indwelling, I'm going to use your words, the indwelling uh, just requires faith to believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Now, I agree with you completely that indwelling is all we need. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the power to do what God has asked us to do. And that's why every day we need to plug in. You know, we can, we can so easily take for granted that God himself lives in us. And this indwelling, to use your word, is a seal. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says that his spirit is given to us as a seal guaranteeing our deposit. It's God putting his mark on us. You know, in the Old Testament, God's people were marked physically by circumcision. Well, what happens to Israel in the physical realm happens to Christians in the spiritual realm. Well, we also are sealed, but not with a physical mark. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit guaranteeing our inheritance. That's all of God in us that we need to have. Now, Tomorrow when I get up, when you get up, James, we need to ask God for the power of his spirit. Acts 5.32 says that power is triggered by obedience. And so if I want power, all I have to do is obey God, and, and the power is already promised to us. 
And the power we need every day, it needs to be new and fresh and relevant every single day. We can't depend on yesterday's power. We can't depend certainly on, on power tomorrow. It's every day walking with Jesus. He's that source of power. And the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And I think probably to answer your question um, in, in a way that is the easiest for everybody to understand, James, is that the indwelling term that you use is, is Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's what happens when we're born again. He comes and lives in us. And as I said from Ephesians chapter 1, he marks us, he seals us with a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. But the Greek word for the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit is the Greek word epi, E-P-I. And that's when he comes upon us in power. And everything that we do, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And James, I think the problem is, too many of us, we try to just do what God wants us to do in our own strength. And that's why it becomes so frustrating. That's why our faith fails. That's why we get discouraged and quit. That's why people experience burnout. Because they're trying to do the work of God and the will of God without the power of God. And so this power is not a given when we step into obe- disobedience, when we are, are, are maybe even doing what we're supposed to do, but we're doing it with the wrong heart, there's no power there. And so what we need is the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon us. Um, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But Paul took the positive approach and he said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. All we have to do is ask for that strength. And that's a prayer, by the way, that God will never, ever refuse. Now, it's required that we walk in righteousness. It's required that we repent of, of sin, that we turn our hearts again to do the will of God. When we'll do those things, then there will be plenty of power. And James, the, the, the most important thing that we can do every day is plug into that power. Jesus, I'm yours. What about me? What about today? Jesus, let me hear your voice. Jesus, set up divine appointments for me. Whatever you have on your agenda, Lord, that now becomes my agenda. And that way we can take the power of heaven to work with us. For those of you who drink coffee, to drink, go through the drive through at Starbucks, to say hi to somebody, to notice that somebody maybe in your job is, is really hurting. They're, they're off today. And you can say, you know what? I've been praying for you, man. Is there something wrong? Any way, anything I can help with? Anything in particular I can pray? That's an opportunity to witness. And when you do that, that power from heaven comes upon you. And that's something that we ought to seek every single minute of every single day. And when we just figure, I got this. You know, uh, you know I go to church. I know the Bible. Uh, we're still trying to serve in our own strength. The best demonstration of this in Jesus' ministry is when he, Peter, James, and John come down off of the Mount of Transfiguration and he sees his disciples arguing with Jewish exorcists about why they couldn't cast out a demon out of this, this boy. And Jesus basically said, because you're trying to use power from the time I told you before I gave you authority over demons, this you are doing on your own. I can just hear him now. I bind you, Satan. Come out. But Satan was laughing at him. The demons were laughing. So what you do is you just say, Lord, 
I really can do nothing apart from you. But I want to do everything you have for me. And the power of God will be yours. Great question and something we all need to remember all the time. Oliver says, Pastor Ron, what's the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12? Well, Oliver, instead of what, it's a who. Uh, This is often mistaken for people in heaven looking down on us as we serve the Lord. That's not at all what it what it's about at all. Now remember, the, the, the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired by God. So when Hebrews chapter 11 ends, it goes right into, it's the same subject as Hebrews chapter 12. So the great cloud of witnesses are those listed in what we call the Hall of Fame of Faith, those Old Testament giants that we've learned so much about. And Hebrews 11 tells us even more about. And they're the ones who are witnesses. Now, they're not witnesses of what we're doing. I think that's where we go wrong. We think, well, they're watching us. That's not what is... They're witnesses of the faithfulness and the goodness and the power of God. So their lives are witnessing to us about the faithfulness of God. And because their lives are a witness, then we can take those lessons from those Hebrews chapter 11 saints and apply them in the New Testament construct into our own lives. So that's who the great cloud of witnesses are. We know God is faithful because he was faithful for them or to them and with them and God doesn't change. Good question. Thank you. Uh, Here's the last question of the day, of the week actually. This is from John and he says, why did God choose Jews as his people. Well, Johnny tells us in 1 Corinthians what the basis of the choices he makes. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, the despised things, the things that are not. And the Jews weren't chosen because there was something special about them. Remember, he chose Abraham. Abraham was a heart-seeking God. And he chose Abraham. Abraham became the father of the Jews. But, but not because Abraham was better than anybody else, but because Abraham was seeking God. And he chooses the weak things. Because if he chose the strong things, then we would take credit for having been chosen. One of the problems with Calvinism and Reformed theology, they think, well, I'm chosen and I'm special. No, no, no. Just like Israel, they were only special because they were chosen. They weren't chosen because they were special. So God chose Jews and made them Israel, his people. And as a result, um, he had a people, a light in the very, very dark world. Well, John, you and I, Christians, we're the ones chosen by God now, and he didn't choose us because of anything special we did. Good question. Thanks a lot. Hey, it's been a good week on the show. Thanks very much. Again, Paul and I would appreciate your prayers. Uh, Pastor Ken will be doing the program for me next week uh, while we're out um, kind of walking with Jesus and uh, we, we'd love to know that you're praying. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Please pray for our President and First Lady and anybody else who gets caught up in that cluster and uh, maybe we'll see God do something really special. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you when I get back. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. 
The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.